In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Would you welcome Larry? Thank you. Thank you, Pat. Thank you, Cottonwood Church. Uh, really so glad to be here this morning. feel very honored to get to share the word with you. Cottonwood has been a special and important church to us because one of our, well, actually, like Pat said, three of our sons, all three have been here for some time. Seth and Terry have been here over 20 years. So we have had the privilege of visiting here over the years numerous times. Love the church. We were so honored to share Friday night and get to meet some more people personally. And uh, you guys are a great bunch of people. You know, I think God kind of likes you. <laughs> Just a hunch I have. Anyway, great to be here. Um, if I were to ask you, scholars tell us there's about 300 plus messianic prophecies, prophecies in the Old Testament about a Messiah, a Savior that is to come. So here's a quiz. If I were to ask you where's the very first one, who would know that? Tom knows it. All right, all of you are going to know it now. Genesis 3.15, I'm going to go quickly through some verses, so if you want to try to keep up, you can, otherwise I've got a PowerPoint. This is right after the fall when Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation of the enemy and did the one thing God said don't do, tempted that they would be just like him, smart as him, know as much as him, basically not need him. And when God begins to speak the consequences to the, the entities involved in that, to the enemy of our souls, to Satan, he says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring, devil, all the demons of hell, and her offspring, the human race. He, meaning one of those humans, will strike your head. Some translations say bruise or crush, and you will strike his heel. So here's a picture of someone coming from the woman, a person, and he is going to deal a devastating blow to the enemy of our souls. He's going to step on, he, he'll be wounded in the process, he'll be bruised, Genesis 3.15. Okay, let's jump to Genesis 12, the story of the Old Testament continues, and God calls a man named Abram, and he says this in Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, he's soon going to change his name to Abraham, but at this point, it's Abram, high father is what it meant. Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. Catch this now. All the families, all the peoples, all the nations, those are some of the other words used in translations, Everyone, every human being on earth will be blessed through you. That's quite a statement, isn't it, to a man? And here he is, 75 years old at this point. God says, through you, Abram, is going to come the one that was prophesied in Genesis 3.15. The seed is now going to come through this man and his offspring, as you probably know, that offspring, Abraham begot Isaac, who begot Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, who had 12 sons, and they became the nation of Israel. So through Israel is going to come a savior, 
uh, of the, the whole earth who's going to deal a devastating blow to the enemy. Now to this people, if we look ahead in uh, De Deuteronomy, and now it's Moses. <laughs> I love going through the history of Israel, but I have to not succumb to that temptation. But let's look at a few things that God says to his people Israel through their leader Moses. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord, Jehovah your God, Yahweh your Lord. Of all the peoples on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. If we go to Deuteronomy 14, again, Moses says to the people, because God is leading him to say this, you have been set apart as holy to the Lord, your God. And he has chosen you from all the nations of the earth to be his own special treasure. And then if we go into the Psalms, the psalmist in Psalm 135 says this, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own special treasure. You know, the Jewish people had a, a high calling upon them to not only be the, the, the race or the, the people that the Messiah would come through and physically be born by, but to be a people that would represent the living God, the creator God, the God of the Bible, to represent him to all the other peoples on the face of the earth. It was a high calling. Let's go to 1 Peter in the New Testament now and look at what the great apostle Peter says in his first epistle. He is writing primarily to newer Gentile believers. There's, there was always a mixture. Well, there wasn't a mixture until... Acts 10, when Cornelius sent, God sent Peter to a, a Roman Gentile's house, and Peter witnessed the Holy Spirit fall upon Cornelius and those Gentiles with him, and he was amazed that, that God had poured out his gospel of grace and his Holy Spirit upon Gentiles. It was eye-opening to these early Jewish believers. But now Peter is writing to a primarily Gentile church, people that are dispersed, and he says this, to, again, the church, Gentile believers and Jewish believers. You are not like that. He talks about how the Jews rejected the Messiah when he came, just as Isaiah prophesied. The chief cornerstone came, they, they, they stumbled upon him, and most Jews in, in Jesus' time reject him, rejected him. There were a few that received him, and that became the seat of the church. And he says, the Jews reject him, they stumbled on the stumbling stone, but you are not like that. You are a chosen people. Sound familiar? This is, again, to New Testament believers. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Some translations say treasure. As a result, you can show others. Will you repeat with me? You can show others. And let's say it this way. I can show others. The goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people... Now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. So how many would agree with me that just a marvelous high calling upon Israel is the Old Testament people? Amen? Do you know that same calling is now yours? You are chosen people. You're a nation of priests. You can show others what God is like, show his goodness. That calling of representing, representing God in the earth is now 
the church's responsibility. Now, some of you might be getting nervous. I want to state very clearly, I don't believe in a doctrine called replacement theology. Replacement theology basically says God rejected Israel, they failed in their calling, and every promise to Israel has now been transferred to the church. I don't believe that at all. But I do believe, because God still has a special place in his heart for the people of Israel. Matter of fact, the fact that Israel's a nation, I, I don't know if you've pondered this ever or recently, never in the history of the human race, the earth, has there been a people that became a nation, and at one point the most powerful nation on earth under David and Solomon, and, and had territory and had an identity, and then, because of their disobedience, were scattered, called the diaspora, and were scattered. Some came back, rebuilt the temple, but it was under the occupation of foreign nations. They were not a nation for 2,500 years approximately, and for absolutely unforeseeable circumstances that no one could ever imagine in 1948, David Ben-Gurion stood on the Holy Land and said, today we declare Israel a nation once again. The United Nations agreed with it. Of course, other nations fired up their armies and began to attack, and they had miraculous victories. They are a nation today only because of God's promises in his word. That, that coming together and becoming a nation again is literally the sovereignty of God. I'd love to go into all the uh, crazy things that happened to make that, but it's God. And, and, and do you think they're somewhat significant today? Do we hear about them in the news once in a while? I, I believe in a nutshell, the church that loves the God of Israel and has been saved and redeemed through Messiah Jesus has a love for Israel as well and knows that the day is coming that the Apostle Paul said in Romans 11, though they were broken off for a season from the root of faith and the family of, of God because of their unbelief in the Messiah, the day is coming where they will say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The day is coming when all Israel, Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved, which I believe will be at the end of the age. And I believe the church and Israel will stand together. And, and, and I, I personally believe, just don't take this to the bank, but the Bible prophecies that the nations of the earth will gather against Israel and God will stand with them and they will see his miraculous power. And I believe they will realize that Jesus is our savior, he's our Messiah. And there'll be a mass turning of the Jewish people to faith in Christ, the faith that you and I share today. So exciting times are coming. But it is an amazing honor to be called, chosen, and grafted in by God to be his special people. A treasure to him, the creator, the king, the almighty, most high God. Every Hebrew prayer, I grew up in a Jewish family, and every Hebrew prayer begins, Baruch Ator Adonai Eloheinu Melech Holam. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. And that King of the universe is our Savior and Lord. We are privileged to be his representatives in the earth. Would you say amen to that? Well, let's ask the question, how did Israel do in their high calling of being God's chosen people, his treasure? And I want to go to 1 Corinthians 10 and read 
a New Testament account by the great apostle Paul as he just looks at some of Israel's history. He says this, I don't want you to forget 1 Corinthians 10. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food provided by God, and all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them. That should be concerning. And their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened to them as warnings to us, as a warning to us, so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did, and they died from snake bites. And don't grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples. He's, second time he said that. They happened as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow your temptation, the temptations to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. So my dear friends, hear this, flee from the worship of idols. That's the Apostle Paul writing to a New Testament church. So my friends, flee. How did they do? This is just Paul doing an account of 40 years in the wilderness. It's not a real success story by any means. How many have read, uh, read the wonderful story of Exodus and how God stretched forth his mighty hands and plagues on Egypt, kept uh, the people of Israel safe, then uh, finally moved on Pharaoh's heart to release them, and they're walking, two million of them. They get to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh changes his mind. The chariots come, and they're, oh, what are we going to do? And Moses says, watch, stand back, watch the salvation of God. The sea opens up. Did you see the movie? You know what it looks like. The sea opened up. They walk across on dry ground. They get on the other side. Pharaoh's chariots chase them. The sea closes in. This is all in the scriptures. And they sing, and they praise, and they dance, and Miriam takes out her tambourine, and they're saying, I will sing unto the Lord. He has triumphed glori gloriously, the horse and the rider, thrown into the sea. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. And then they go three days and there's no water. And they say to Moses, what are you doing to us? Why did you do this? Why did you lead us out here? We were better off in Egypt. Did you ever, when you read that, do you ever think, what a bunch of idiots. <laughs> How could they do that? I mean, they just witnessed so many miracles of God. Three days is all it took for them to start grumbling, complaining, and saying, why did you do that? You know, Paul says in, in this text, be careful if you think you're standing, lest you fall. Because maybe we'll see as we go on, we are prone to some of the same temptations that Israel fell to. Anyway, let me read one more scripture from Judges, the book of Judges that gives a little history summary kind of 
uh, Judges 2, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. It's a real key there. That's what happened repeatedly in Israel's history. They, they lost that sense of calling destiny being God's special people, and they got influenced by the pagan people around them, those who didn't acknowledge the Lord. And they fell into idolatry. They fell away from the Lord. Could we put the slide up by Winston Churchill? Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Winston Churchill said that, and I wouldn't quote Winston Churchill if he didn't line up <clears throat> with the Apostle Paul, but that's exactly what Paul was saying. Learn from Israel's history. Somebody once said, it's, it's smart to learn from your own mistakes. Would you agree with that? But it's really smart to learn from the mistakes of others and be observant and look around. And, and, and Paul is saying, learn from the mistakes of those that went ahead of you. Israel, their mistakes are, happen to them as examples for us and they are written down in scripture to teach us and warn us. So like Israel before us in the Old Testament, we who are re reconciled to God through Jesus, both Jew and Gentile in the New Testament, we are his special treasure a people called to know him, love him, worship him, and glorify him, showing others the Lord Jesus Christ. People, if you're a believer, you're, you're a leader. God has called you to go out into the world and show people, lead people, show them what it's like to really live a life that honors God. Show them what God is like by loving them as he loves us. We have such a high calling upon us. It's an amazing honor and privilege to be his special treasure. I want to put a few slides up. Um, I'll be sarcastic and say, good thing it's so much easier today because we know how silly idolatry is. Or do we? Here's a few quotes. First one's by D.L. Moody. You maybe heard of him, great preacher from Chicago, uh, I think last century. He said this, could we put that slide up? You don't have to go to heathen lands today to find false gods. America is full of them. Whatever you love more than God is your idol. The next one, trusting people, possessions, or positions to do for me what only God can do. That's a definition of idolatry. It's, it's not comprehensive, but it catch, captures something. Trusting people, possessions, or positions to do for me what only God can do. As long as you, next one, as long as you want anything very much, especially more than you want God, it is an idol. And that was A.B. Simpson, founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance Church. And the last one, today's idols are more in the self than on the shelf. I think most of us are kind of too smart to think that some carved image or, is a god. But today's idols for us are more in the self than they are on the shelf. It was, see, see, 
the idolatry that Israel fell into, it wasn't just, oh, that idol, that carved statue, it's so beautiful, I think I'll worship that. That wasn't it at all. It was the people of the land around them and their practices. How many know that it's not easy to be called to be holy? We've we've got a a, a sinful nature that we have to deal with. And we're, we're drawn to gratify the desires of our sinful nature. And the pagan uh, religions around them catered to that. There were uh, practices amongst the people of Canaan. They had temple, temples where you went to worship and in those temples were prostitutes. How many, how many would think that might be a little tempting for some of the Jewish men? I mean, there, there, there was so much sensuality and gratification of the sinful nature involved in these false religions. So again, it wasn't just bowing to a silly idol. It was becoming like the people around you for Israel that didn't honor God, didn't fear God, that didn't really want to please him. And, and it looked to Israel, I'm sure, like it looks to many of, of us, especially young people, they have all the fun. They get to do all those things. And I, I'm, I'm holy. The, the great musician and psalmist Asaph wrote a psalm saying, I was falling down this slippery slope. I looked around me and I saw all the people that have no fear of God. They just live for themselves and they're all doing great. They're healthy. They're prospering. And it's futile to serve God. He's sharing that in the psalm and saying, but then, but then I went to the house of the Lord and he opened my eyes and I saw the slippery slope that people are on who don't live for God. And, and then in the end, he's just so thankful that he knows the living God. Let's go to 1 John chapter 2 and just look again at another warning that we have in the New Testament by a different apostle. The Apostle John writing, John so close to Jesus, one of his three closest friends, he says this in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 15, do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, by the way, three Greek words talk about world. One is the globe, the earth. One is the people of the world, which is used in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the people of the world, that he gave his only begotten son. And the third one is another word that means the spirit of the world that does not honor God and that does its own thing that's filled with sin and sinful practices. That's what John is using here. Do not love the spirit of the world and the prince of the world. Jesus uh, acknowledged Satan as the prince of this world system. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see with our natural eyes, and pride in our own achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world, from this world. And the world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. So do we have some warnings in the New Testament to be careful uh, not to fall in to being like those around us who do not honor God? 
So I want to talk a little bit about what are some of the things we battle. 2024, North Dakota, Minnesota, the amazing, prosperous country of the United States of America. How many feel very thankful to live here? I mean, we are so blessed. Uh, some of the richest people that have ever lived on the face of this earth. And we're all concerned about things that are happening in our nation and so forth, but still, when we see things that are happening in the world, we, I think I heard a statistic, if you make $35,000 a year family income, you're in the top 1% of the richest people in the world. We are rich. So what's one of the things that we struggle with? Anybody besides me ever think, if I had more money, my life would be so much better. Anybody else struggle with that ever? It's probably just me. <laughs> or you see the Powerball being at, you know, 600 and something million dollars, and I don't buy lottery tickets. I'm just, but, and you think, wow, if I won that, Lord, I'd give you so much. But even if I had just 10 or 12 million left, oh, life would be so good, you know. What's one of the things we really struggle with in America? It is money and things. It's possessions. We abound. We're rich. Sometimes we put our trust in money. We put our hope in wealth, our confidence when our finances are good. You know, it's interesting on the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, don't worry about your provision like the unbelievers do. Uh, know that your father will take care of your needs. He cares for you way more than the birds and the, and the flowers and so forth. But you rather focus on eternity and lay up treasures in heaven. There's no corruption there. And then he concludes that portion. He says, you cannot serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other or love the other and hate the other. Um, you cannot serve God and the devil. Does he say that? He doesn't say that. He says you cannot serve God and money, wealth, mammon. So how many would agree with me God's really smart? He's a genius. He knows that the greatest competition for our heart's devotion as his people is wealth, money, things. It just, we, we get, we feel, again, peaceful. We, we've got a lot of money. We're, oh, that's what, that's what will make my life better. It's a deception. It's a deception. And it's a competition for the place in our heart that only Jesus deserves. Let me say this. Money is really good. Money is good. Some people think, oh, the Bible says money is the root of all evil. And it doesn't say that at all. It says the love of money. So money is good. Money helps our lives. Money gives us the ability to give and partner with God to see his kingdom advance. Money is good to help other people. Money is really good. Loving it is really bad. So... I think God gave us in his word a solution to detach our hearts from the love of money 
And that solution is tithing and being a generous giver. You know, God, you know, it says be imitators of God as his dear children. How many would say God is greedy? God hoards things for himself and doesn't really care about others. I mean, that's so contrary to the nature of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God is the most generous giver in the universe. And do you know what he wants us to be? His dear children that imitate him. So it's such a privilege to be able to say as an act of worship, Lord, I, I want to obey your word. I love you. I want to live for you. I am going to take the first 10%. It's yours. I'm going to give it back to you gladly. I personally believe the first tenth should go to your local church where God has you. Um, but I will just leave that there. I, you can make a case in the Bible, but I'm not going to do that this morning. It's an act of worship. It's an act of faith. Lord, you're my provider. This is in your word. I'm going to do this cheerfully. And I want to tell you, when I started, I had my heels in the ground and there were some furrows behind me. I don't want to do this. I was a young believer. My wife was like, honey, we should do this. And, okay, we started doing it very early. She was the one who really uh, was a motivator for me. So it, it really connects our hearts to God. It, it, we join with him in his purposes in the earth. And, and, and we do it as an act of worship. And it increases our faith because his promise is when you do that, you, you'll experience me more. I'll bless you. Not just the financial ways, but... We have that blessing and peace that we're obeying God. The other thing is, it really does detach us from loving money. It, you know what it says in the Proverbs? The righteous love to give. It doesn't say the righteous love money. It says the righteous love to give. So anyway, I just want to encourage you, if you have not entered into that realm in your Christian walk of realizing all your finances are from the Lord, he's your provider, and you are faithfully following the scriptural principles... Uh, I encourage you to do it. It'll be so good for your heart, your walk with God, and uh, you'll just experience more peace. What are some other idols that we have to contend with in our modern culture and society? How about sports, hobbies, and recreation? I sure hope none of you are going to be watching that evil old Super Bowl today. I'm kidding. Uh, enjoy your Super Bowl parties, and if you're rooting for the Chiefs, God might forgive you. Uh, but anyway. No, seriously, sports, hobbies, recreation have become so highly exalted in our culture. And where I've seen it affect the church is where when our kids get involved in sports, we want to be very supportive parents. Amen? I really want to be. We had our, our sons, especially our daughter, shifted from sports to more artsy music things. So, but our three sons were really involved in three seasons of sports. We've been to hundreds, if not thousands of games, really enjoyed it. But a mistake that could be made is if we don't honor Christ in our home first, our kids will get the subtle message that their sports activities are the most important thing and they are the center of our lives. We don't want to pass on to our children that they are the center of our lives. We want to pass on to our children that Jesus is the most important thing in this home. And I'll just, um, ooh, no, I won't. Uh, 
when Seth, okay, I'll do it. I'm a guest speaker, uh, probably won't be, well, anyway. I do want to honor the local leadership at the time, but they did give me some leeway. When Seth was a junior in high school, he was a quarterback of our team, starting quarterback. And they won their first playoff game and they were going to the second playoff game. That was going to be tough. And um, something happened in our church where the guy who was going to drive the youth group down to acquire the fire conference down at the U of M, he couldn't do it. And the other one or two other guys that had CD licenses that could drive the church bus were totally unavailable and it fell on me. And I, I went to Seth and I said, you know, um, we've got this youth trip planned. All the kids signed up. They paid. It, it leaves. We leave on Friday. And this was a Friday night game. And he said to me, Dad, I know you're my biggest fan. And I know if there was any way possible that, that you'd be there cheering me on. But this is what you, you need to do for the Lord. Just do it. And totally release me. He didn't remember that. I talked to him about that yesterday. But I remembered it vi vividly and so appreciated that. As I bring this to a close, I, I, wanna, I want you to see with me that many modern-day idols, I love to fish and hunt. Pat made reference to that. I live on a lake that's good walleye fishing if you know how to fish it, and uh, love, one of my highlights of my year is when Caleb comes, he likes to fish, and we fish together, and we catch a lot of walleyes and some really big ones, and, and uh, I like to bow hunt white-tailed deer. But if, if those things had a place in my heart that was too important, and I was neglecting more important things, especially things that God would want me to do, those good things would actually be idols. You know, in our culture, in our walk with the Lord today, it's not the really evil things that many of us are drawn away to, it's the good things that become too important. So if we have a proper perspective in our heart that God is first, living for him is first, passing that on to my children, that's first. Somebody once said, when Jesus has first place in our hearts, he helps everything else fall into the right place. And I believe that. So my challenge to us this morning, worship team, would you come up, please? The last scripture that I have is the last verse of 1 John, John's first letter. The very last verse, chapter 5, verse 21, it says, could we put that up, please? Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Some translations say, dear children, stay away from idols. And that's what an idol is. It's something that takes God's place in your heart. So as we close the service today, I just want to give everybody an opportunity. The worship team is going to lead us in a very simple chorus, something we grew up years ago singing, uh, Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds. And what's that, that saying is, Lord, you're better than all the riches of the world. You're better. And then the last line, and nothing, nothing that I desire compares with you.
So I'm just going to ask you as we sing and to just, don't just sing a song. Sing that to the Lord. Make that your heart's prayer. Maybe you're here today and, and uh, the Holy Spirit's working on you and you realize, I really haven't given Jesus his rightful place in my heart. He's my savior. I have faith. But maybe today you want to drive a stake in the ground and say, Lord, I'm declaring today that you have first place in my heart. All that I am, all that I have, it's it's you. It's yours. And you really want to give your heart to Jesus in a, a, a more complete way than you ever have. Feel free to do that as you're singing this to him. Lord, you are. Okay, and uh, thank you for listening and being an attentive group of people who love the Lord. Let's stand together.